Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 17th part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. In our last episode, Brett and I discussed all the events leading up to and constituting the crisis of the third century. This week, we learned just how Rome cleans up their mess. So was it with a broom and dustpan or a mop? I'm afraid it was um, a tad more complicated than that, Aaron. Uh, so... Where we last left off, Rome had split into several kingdoms. Um, you have, and you have the Palmyran Empire, which is in the east. You have the Gallic Empire, which is north of Rome, all led by different generals who, for various reasons, noble or not, have decided they no longer need to follow the rules of the emperor. And as we discussed, this is mainly due to the fact that who is the emperor is changing so rapidly that it's not worth it to support a guy when his his claims to power are so flimsy that like you know you're not even sure if he's the real emperor i mean not everyone even agrees that he's the emperor right and also these these so that's kind of like the less altruistic reason right is there like why would i pay taxes to a person who won't even be around in a month right the more altruistic reasons would be like you know, all of these generals who are, you know, laying claim to emperor, they don't just like show up by themselves and like submit like a application into a mailbox. They have to show up with an army and, and wage war. And those armies are their armies. So it's like, you know, for Britain, for example, the general would have to take the army that was probably being used to defend the frontier and walk them to Rome to, to fight, right? And so these regions are they're unguarded they're undefended and so the low whoever is left behind is left to kind of like be in charge just to to keep the local population from being overrun i, I can imagine that like instability is probably one of the key factors like why and i think we've talked about this before like why work hard when you don't know that that person will be around in a month there's there's no point in really uh forging strong ties and loyalties or really putting in any effort because it could all just be erased in a moment's notice. You really need to have somebody in power for a sustained period of time before you can actually trust them and know that they're not yeah, going Yeah, and anywhere. I mean, Rome, the empire of Rome, up until this point, is built like entirely on this like agreement between the population. And when I say population, I mean the nobles of a region, not necessarily everyone, but uh, let's say the nobles of a region and the emperor to like rule together. People, again, nobles, would willingly spend their own money to fix up a region because it makes them look good in the eyes of of rome right um people would build bathhouses they would run they would conduct public office tasks in their neighborhoods because it was like seen as like a a, a good thing to do right it was like um a modern day i guess you could think of like billionaires running for public office would be like a good example but by the time of the crisis, that kind of like agreement has broken down because on the, the emperor side, there's like no one there to, to give you kudos, to give you pats on the back, to, to reward you with that intangible um, pride, right? So you don't do it. Why would you do it? Why do you care? You don't need to collect taxes anymore. There's no one there to even enforce that law. You're just collecting them for yourself now. The tax person would come by, let's say, every five years. Now they're coming by every 20 years. 
Yes, and and I, I think this is also a, a question of value. So even you know amongst the gentry, amongst the nobles of Rome, there's more inward thinking. There's no longer this glory. I, I, I would ascribe there's no longer this glory in building vast public works in which one can reap credit and praise for. So now mm-hmm. every every motivation that someone has is how do I just hold on to my little plot of whatever? And and you know there's no it's completely inward in terms of how people are thinking right now. So you have this this empire that has essentially fallen apart, and this should really be the end of the story. Um, <laughs> this is, by all accounts, like historical precedent. This is usually where the story ends for these empires: is they fracture and they fragment, and then they never reform because I don't know why. I mean, lots and lots of of books have been written. Lots of people have studied their whole lives to try to understand what happens. I think I think the answer is probably something along the lines of that. Once, like freedom is given, it's it's hard to take away. Right. Mm-hmm. My um, friend, my my friend Kenny would say that every organization, and maybe we could extrapolate this to the level of of states and countries, has like noble founders or people that are operating under ideals but then over time the people who are operating under those ideals are just simply replaced by those seeking power so perhaps perhaps there's some some larger extrapolation that could be made from that right that's absolutely right Aaron for whatever reason the Roman Empire is able to kind of climb out of this and there's there's two stories at play here story number one is first how how does Rome climb out of this hole and become reformed as the Roman Empire. And then the second question, I would argue, is what's different? I mean, maybe nothing. Maybe, you know, Rome returns to exactly as it was, and uh, everyone just forgets this as a bad dream. But I, I could tell you right now that that's not the case. Things have to change so that Rome can continue in some form. Uh, Rome goes through, I mean, many changes throughout its history. Rome starts as a scoundrel city that's a republic and models itself after the government and philosophies of ancient Greece. And then it turns into a a bloated kind of bureaucratic oligarchy into a, you know, an empire into and, uh, you know, like a, a theocracy for a little while. Rome goes through many, many changes, right? And, and we're about to see it go through another one right now. So let's, let's, let's get to it. So I'll start with the name, Aurelian. Aurelian is the first of two emperors who are kind of credited for pulling Rome out of the mud and reforming the, the, the empire. Aurelian is, is active in the late uh, 200s uh, AD, so like 270, 275, um, he's waging war with the, um, the Goths, the Jugurthi, the, um, the Vandals, right? Um, I, 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 as a small tangent, I love the Vandals. Their, their name is now forever synonymous in English with destruction, right? That's how how much uh, the Romans don't like them, that that's what their name means, right? Were they actually a destructive people or? I mean, there's no, there's not really such a thing. Like any, any like, <laughs> to the Romans, certainly. Um, the people, oh, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but like 
by the the 500s AD, uh, the Vandals will control North Africa. And people living okay. under the Vandals, they probably are not seeing a huge shift in in what's going on, right? Um, probably the Goths did more damage to the territory they controlled than the Vandals. The Vandals just usurped the Roman territory and then said like, okay, pay your taxes to us now because we're in charge, right? So getting back to Aurelian in the, the late two, 200s AD, um, Aurelian's not really a politician. He's, he's a general. He knows, so his first thing, his first thing, his first task is he decides that, and he's a, he's a, a Roman general. He decides that he wants to bring the Palmyran empire back into the fold. Palmyra is ruled by like a child. And then un, above him is his mother, a woman named Zenobia. Uh, she tries to do like, um, some some negotiation. She's like, well, maybe we can come to an understanding. You and I. I can pay you. I can make you rich. We'll we'll figure something out. But he's having none of it. He is like a a loyal Roman soldier, and he, you know, no, right. So he smashes Palm. He smashes the Palmyran Empire in the Battle of Emae, and you know, absolutely decimates this this trade city, right or this trade empire, uh, which is kind of what Palmyra had become. Palmyra being in the east, the Palmyran empire being in the east separates Rome from the, um, um, they became like quite the, the trade city because they're in the east, they're situated between the Rome, the Romans and the Sassanids, right? The Sassanid empire. And, and they got, they're getting rich in the desert off of tariffs and taxes of goods and services traveling between these two regions. So Aurelian is able to kind of like smash the Palmyran Empire and and take back the East, right? Um, once that area is secured, he starts moving west. Uh, there's an empire there's an emperor named Posthumus who uh, he's claimed like the Northwest part of, of the East as his own. And Aurelian marches over there and defeats him. There's this, this era for him of just like moving around slowly and just conquering these regions and returning them back into the fold. It's probably likely caused by the fact that like disease is still pretty a factor and like, um, these regions are still somewhat weak militarily. And the reason that they were able to break apart in the first place is because of the weak central government of Rome, which is now not as weak. Emperor Aurelian is the first one to like really get on it, right? So it's like before him, you had these feckless emperors who would rule for like a month and then, you know, they'd be murdered by their own troops or like another general. And, and Aurelian is able to he's like a big enough personality that that doesn't happen. With all these other generals, many of them were might makes right kind of policy, right? Like I got the army, I'm going to rule. What mm-hmm. makes him a bit more reasonable or sensible or, or what characteristics or qualities does he have that allow him to not just take over with brute force, but also have like some executive functioning skills to, 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 to claim legitimacy and hold on to it? Well, so one might be, a check on his ambition, right? He's he's clearly not as 
megalomaniacal as some of his predecessors. And the other thing is probably purpose. I mean, all of his predecessors look to rule because probably, you know, it's, we're speculating here, but you know, this decision to rule for power's sake is just not as effective as the people who want to rule to, to, to govern. Septimius Severus has the same problem. A lot of it, a lot of the emperors have this problem, but but Aurelian is is interested in the in, in reforming the Roman Empire. So that mm. alone gives him more of a, a a backing of the people, the backing of the Senate, or whatever that's worth these days. And even some of the generals. I mean, like the thing is, is like if you're doing something noble and the other generals, you know, they like that, then instead of so like if you if you join if you wage war on the capital because you want to be rich, then the other generals might just be like, well, I want to be rich too. Uh, in order for me to be rich, I'm against you. I have to depose you and take your spot. But if you're like, I want to rule because I want to reform the empire, and then the other generals are like, hey, we also want to reform the empire, that's not, it doesn't, that's not mutually exclusive like that first thing was, yeah. right? They can yeah. work together and all of them can still accomplish their goal. I think that's some really good insight. I actually just wrote those two things down, purpose and having one's ego under control. I think that will make for a great discussion uh, when we uh, tie up this crisis. Okay, go ahead, continue, my friend. Uh, sure. So Aurelian, Aurelian's role is, for the most part, to like reform the empire, the, the, like, the territory of it. But there's many smaller problems inside of the empire that need to be addressed. So Aurelian unifies Rome, but the guy who comes after him is the one who really puts into practice the policies that will enable Rome to survive, right? And that guy is Diocletian. He's considered one of the best emperors Rome's ever had, probably because of what I just said, because he just saves Rome from completely falling apart. So there are, essentially, there's like a few major reasons why, how Rome got itself into this problem, right? And we'll address, I'll go one at a time and address what they are very briefly, because we've already addressed them, and then how they're fixed by Diocletian. So let's talk the first and most obvious one. Sure. The debasage of the coinage. Yep. Uh, the Roman emperors for a really long time, even during the time of the good emperors, even during the golden age, the Pax Romana, the emperors have been debasing the coin, sometimes a little, sometimes a lot, but they've been debasing it. As they debase the coin, the coins become worth less. As they become worth less, they become worthless. And as they become worthless, um, the, the population is less likely to accept money for goods and services because they know the coin's not worth anything, which makes the empire devolve into a barter society. And having a money economy is really important. Think of it, think of anything beyond trading goods for other goods, anything past that. Think of it as uh, what, what we might call an economic tool. And economic tools are like regular tools in that you need simpler tools to build more complicated tools. You, If you wanted to make a power drill by hand, 
or from scratch, you probably at some point in the process would need a screwdriver. And then to even make a screwdriver at some point in the process, you probably need a hammer. So we're going from simpler tools to more complicated tools. And it's no difference in, in economics. So like in the modern day, we have lots of complicated financial tools. We have things like credit. We have things like stocks. We have things, I mean, like even more complicated, we have things like cryptocurrency. These are all financial tools. Debt is a financial tool. In Rome, they were just starting to get the hang of it, but the most basic tool to get all of that, that you cannot do any of the more fun stuff without, is money economy. You need currency, right? So how do we fix it? So this one's the most obvious. Diocletian just stops debasing the coinage. He try, he takes lengths to remove bad currency from from circulation while introducing new currency that has uh, much that has its gold and silver content much higher. Right. Okay. I, I have a lot of questions about this. So I imagine he so when he stops debasing the currency, does he put out a decree that like any coin minted before this year is no longer in circulation, but every coin after this year is, or how exactly does he, um, because people are going to be pissed, right? Like if I've got a bunch of these types of coins and now all of a sudden the government is telling me, oh, by the way, those coins aren't worth anything. I'm going to be pissed as hell. So I'm wondering how he kind of tells people, hey, all those coins you have are, are no longer valid or no longer accepted here. Because I imagine people are going to be angry as hell when they're told that. They're not told it's no longer valid. Rather, what happens is he introduces newer, pure coins. It's called the, sal the Salatus. Um, Diocletian mints a new coin called the Salatus, which is almost pure gold. It is, I want to say it was like 95% pure gold. That doesn't mean that the other coins were, were out of mint. It means that the government in its dealings was using this golden coin. And it meant that the people could have confidence in this coin. And when the government would get its hands on these cheaper coins, you buy something and you use the, you know, five trillion sesterces uh, and you get five Salatus back, those five trillion sesterces would get thrown in the garbage, right? Kind of the way that the US Mint uh, gets rid of bad currency. Probably not too different from that. But there are some problems with this, I should point out. One of them being that it was only really the very rich who are capable of like exchanging their, their coins for this, right? They're the only ones who have enough money to even buy this, this expensive coin in large numbers. And so they can buy it up quickly and then their value goes up and up and up because they have this now really stable piece of currency. And the poor people who can't afford to change their coins because they just don't have enough of them, their coins become worth less and less and less as time goes on, right? Uh, like imagine if um, they, the US minted a new like $10,000 bill and then the if you're buying things with a $10,000 bill, your currency, your prices are what they normally are. And if you're buying things with anything less than the $10,000 bill, you're gonna suffer inflation, right? Okay. Kind of like that. Now, th this seems like very, con I don't know if we'll have all the answers here because you said that 
these older coins would go out of circulation when the government got its hands on it. So I, I imagine there wasn't like a central bank in Rome that that could collect these things. So the only yeah. way that the only way that the government is getting their hands on this is through taxation, which means that when Rome gets these coins through taxation, they're they're kind of destroying their own tax dollars in a way, right? I, I mean, like right. I, that's 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 a huge loss because that's that's now money that you can't use to build roads because you can't redistribute that money to pay workers to pay to build roads or do whatever else that you need to do. So I imagine this is a very complicated and, and like very incremental system because the, the US government does this all the time, but they're what they're doing is they're not it's very diff it's very difficult to like take money out of circulation without directly replacing it. It's just it's a very difficult thing because people are always going to be like, well, where's my hundred dollars? Oh, here's a new hundred dollar bill. Okay, fine, all's all's good. But they're they're actively destroying money without necessarily uh, providing a replacement, with the exception of these very expensive coins that only a few people can get a hold of it. So I imagine this this project goes on for like decades before. Oh, it has to be sure. very incremental, right? You have to also realize that these coins that they're removing are basically worthless anyway. Okay. They're they're damaging the economy. So he's he's he also he tries to do price fixing, which doesn't work. It never works. <laughs> Soviet be, Union. Soviet Union. Let that be a, a lesson <laughs> to like every wannabe leader throughout any. Uh, Price fixing has been tried in so many countries, in so many empires, throughout the world, throughout history. It's literally never worked. So don't do it, okay? If you're sitting there at home listening to this and you're trying to learn how you can become the next Augustus, the next Stalin, the next Mao, the next, I don't know, Pol Pot, um, do not price fix. It's, there's it's one. Uh, there's one exception. The French government actually fixes the price of like a baguette or like a loaf of bread, and they they've done that throughout their entire history. And that's the one the one example that seems to have worked okay for them. I'll, I'll just hmm. throw. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> so Diocletian also has he also en uh, enacts uh, new land taxes, new taxes on people who are just like alive, like a living tax. He revives and restructures the census to do a better job of accurately calculating who lives where and who can pay what taxes. The, remember that Rome has just been reunified and probably has not been collecting taxes for some time now. Yes. So this is really, really important to Rome that they're able to re reestablish control of these regions, not just militarily, but financially as well. Okay. Right? We discussed that a lot of the borders were dismantled as a result of uh, plague, right? So I'm wondering how, how, how are things like? Does the plague subside a little bit, and now he can reestablish the border and then collect taxes? How, how exactly does yeah, he get the around? plague is the plague is calming down a bit now. Okay, um, the, I, that's one of the reasons the empire split. But I, I guess it's worth mentioning. So one of the reasons the empire split was because of the plague, but um, they don't really do anything in particular to um like diocletian is does not do anything great to stop the plague it just runs its course so he just gets lucky on that front yeah time eventually takes care of it for him and okay so yeah i'm not taking away from I'm not taking credit away from the guy but there's also a little bit of luck there okay i don't think it's surprising that there is a little bit of luck is required to become a successful leader yeah you know, like this. <laughs> Seems like that'll always happen, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, Diocletian also, so that's, that's, the, that's the economic part, mm-hmm. right? The next part that we should talk about is military generals, right? Military generals are, they're, they're sometimes referred to as barracks emperors, and they are, they are the generals who come out and win one battle, and then they're like, you know what? We're going to Rome. Uh, it's time for me to be the emperor. They're the might makes right emperors, and they're a huge existential threat to Rome for two reasons. Reason number one is just the general idea that civil war is really bad for a country, right? Reason number two, which is a little bit more cerebral, is that you cannot trust your generals to do things of importance because any great victory that they win makes them a potential rival to you. Sure. So you can't delegate. And what good is a leader that can't delegate? I mean, that's, yeah, that's difficult. Like you can't be all knowing. Right. And you can't, beyond just not knowing everything, you can't be everywhere. And I mean, like in the modern day, I guess it's not as big a deal, but like back then it's like to lead an army into battle required you to physically be there. Yeah. I like, this was before, you know, like obviously, you know, really good cell reception. I don't know if they could make phone calls from like, <laughs> you know, Carthage all the way to like Syria. You know, yeah, probably, right. probably they only had landlines back then. That's no way to run, <laughs> Pony, run a military. Pony Express. <laughs> exactly. Literally that. Yeah. Um, so what Diocletian does is he says, okay, if my rivals to power if my if my great generals are going to be rivals to power, then let me just give them power. They want power, they can have power. His thinking was that bringing your enemies into the fold changes them from enemies to allies. Brilliant. Um, Absolutely brilliant, yes. And so what he does is he forms a, a new structure of government that is called the Tetrarchy. The Tetrarchy means now there are, instead of one emperor, there are four emperors. There's one senior emperor. This was his, this was his plan. There's one senior empire, emperor. Then under him is this secondary emperor mm-hmm. who is senior to everyone except for the senior emperor. And this isn't the first time that Rome has, has done this, right? I mean, like, even during the days of Augustus, you had Augustus who was... Augustus, which means the revered one. And then under him, you have his childhood best friend and right-hand man, Agrippa, who is uh, the in charge of everyone and everything except for Augustus. Yes, right? yes. And so this is not new. They've done this before. But that now um, they're giving the second guy a fancy title. Well, Agrippa <laughs> did have a title. They're giving him a different title. Um, so now you have the main guy. You have the second in command, the vice president, I believe they called him. Uh, and then, and then under each of them, you have two junior emperors named Caesars, right? So you have two Augustus and then two Caesars. And the Caesars, they are equal to each other, but beneath the other two. And they rule and are like learning the ropes. And then the the idea was was that the two senior emperors would, after ten years, step down. And the two Caesars would step into their place and they would become the, the senior Augustus and junior Augustus. And then 
they would pick two new Caesars to rule under them for 10 years. Uh-huh. He tried to institute term limits into being an emperor. So I'm going to throw down a cliche here, but it's kind of like uh, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. It, 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 he, knows, he knows that if these people f- feel locked out of the room, they're just a threat. They're going to rebel. They're going to want to take over. So he kind of gives them a title and probably some power, but not power that can exceed his own power. So it's bringing them into the fold, but in a way that they're carefully monitored and that there's no way that their power could usurp his own power. Right, but enough so that they will maybe not... I mean, risking risking your life and the life lives of your soldiers and and your title and your land and everything for a position that you will have 10 years from now anyway they probably like it's it dissuades them right right right. but it's also like i'm just thinking about this like imagine i own a company and i see that you're starting another company that could possibly rival my company and maybe maybe you're actually a lot smarter than me or maybe your your company's has a much better plan or whatever so i come to you and say hey man I'm going to make you my executive vice president or whatever. I'm going to pay you $3 million a year. It's like, I'm bringing you in the fold, not because I'm a nice guy, but because, because of the existential threat that you pose to my company, I'm bringing you into my own company. So I can somewhat control you, but I'm also, I'm also giving you like a very generous package to kind of keep you happy. Absolutely. And I mean, you, there's, that's a really, really good analogy because you can say, well, I am starting a competing company. There's a lot of risk in starting a competing company. And I might be less willing to take that risk if you're offering me something akin to what I wanted anyway. Right, right yes. And then uh, on top of that, I'm starting a competing company. I clearly know what I'm doing. So I would be a great asset to your company. I would be useful in your company because I clearly know enough about whatever it is we make, let's say bicycles, that I I was able to at least threaten another bicycle company that would have, you know, given you a run for your money. So having me on your team is not just beneficial because I'm out of the way. It's beneficial because I know a lot about bicycles. I, I will do good for your company, you know, and then you'll eventually step down and I'll run the whole bicycle empire anyway. And so why would I start a new company when I'm going to be the CEO in 10 years? Yeah, yeah. Before we move on, it's just it's like a very it's just a very dark thing about human nature. It's like if you want to get ahead in this world, it's not necessarily the the most safest, most comfy person. Be a more threatening person, and then and then you're more likely to get ahead because people will be afraid of what you could become if you're not kept sufficiently happy. Okay, let's go ahead and continue from that. Right. So the next the next thing would be the barbarians. Okay. The barbarians are becoming much more active and much more um, dangerous. Their level of technology is rising and their organization is rising. They are not – for they've spent a long time being left to their own devices and they have consolidated, right? Yeah, um, they no longer hate each other. Yeah, and they now no longer see – it used to be that – they they were the low hanging fruit for each other, and Rome was was too big of an animal to kind of tackle. And now it's the opposite. Rome is the low hanging fruit mm-hmm. because of how poor their defenses are. So that plus plague, right? 
uh, which which does hurt these. It hurts the whole world. But keep in mind that Rome is a metropolitan empire with big cities. And I'm sure you can guess that, you know, big cities struggle with plague more than the little ones. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Probably by now. <laughs> uh, you know that from experience. So the solution here is they create this like mobile cavalry that can quickly move from location to location. Rome goes from being like having one continued contiguous border and then they um, they defend the border to like having these like unmanned forts that are manned by the local population. And when an incursion is on the way or, you know, it's getting worse, they can call this like mobile cavalry unit to like come and protect the, the borders of the empire where they need to. This is useful because one, it prevents, it lets the, the military be more centralized, which is good because the less centralized military was becoming a problem, as you remember. And two, it makes it more reactive. It's able to react to threats better. Right. Um, all of these changes are causing a change in Roman government as well. Rome is becoming so previously. Oh, you know, let me say the last thing, actually. The last thing is right to rule. What separates a Roman general from the emperor? Well, as the crisis of the third century drags on, less and less. <laughs> and might makes right becomes the, the rule. That's an existential threat to the empire, right? It becomes a question of what do we do when the guy who's knocking at our door with the armed soldiers has just as much right to rule as we do? We can't rally anyone to our side because, frankly, there's no reason that we should be in charge over him beyond just the fact that we think we want to, right? Well, I, I think we, we'll talk about that in the, in the later analysis, but go on. So the, there's a couple of solutions here. One solution, which I, I think is my favorite one, is that Rome becomes like a pseudo-theocracy. The, the emperors who have previously said in propaganda that they are like descended from the, the Roman gods are, go even harder in that direction. Uh, where once the emperor was like this accessible figure who you who would like take walks in the garden and you could talk with them and and get your problems solved by them. Now they're like shrouded in mystery. You like always have to have your head bowed when you're talking to them because they are literally the reincarnation of, of Jupiter on Earth. Right. Wow. So this is like Roman divine right. This yeah. is amazing. This gives them this gives them the authority to be emperor. And it's like, why should you be emperor? instead of this general? And the answer is, well, I have the mandate of heaven. That's why, you know? And that, I, was, I was hoping it was going in a different direction. I'm kind of disappointed it's going in that direction, but I was what hoping were, it was going- What were you hoping? I hope it was like, well, I have authority because I can, I can hold this down. I have enough great ideas and I've got my ego under control, but okay, we'll, we'll save that for the, the, the post-game analysis. Sure. The other thing <laughs> that's happening now is that the, the previously, during the era of the Principate, Rome is is led by a bunch of great leaders, right? The local leaders in the various uh, provinces reporting up to uh, Augustus. You know, Augustus, the the Roman the Roman bureaucracy 
is like a couple of hundred people, maybe, which is not that many considering how big Rome is. Now, Rome is run by an enormous bureaucracy with the imperial, the imperial uh, entourage at the center, right? This means that all of the power of Rome is centralized in the hands of only a couple of people, even more so than it was. Because of that, it's harder for other people to rebel because, well, you don't have control of the tax mechanism. You don't have control of, of the, the, uh, the economic system. You don't have control over the census. It's, it's, even if you do manage to seize control, uh, you're not going to control the government, the apparatus that controls the government, right? Whereas before, you just had to convince a couple of nobles that you were right, and then they could help you. Now those nobles don't have that power anymore. The nobles have been stripped of their authority almost entirely in this era. Could, could you explain this a little bit more? So let's say I'm a general and I overthrow the current emperor. What makes, why can't I just become the new central focal point of the empire? And now all those, all those bureaucracies are under me. Like I'm, I'm You can, bit... if you get that far, you can. The okay. question becomes this. It's like, you need money to wage your war. Right? Uh, okay. And you're like, we need to tax the locals. In the old days, you could just go to the local noble and be like, support me in my bid for power. And that local noble might be like, sounds good. We'll turn the taxes over to you so you can raise the, the funds to wage war on the Roman government. But now that noble would be like, I don't collect taxes. Some bureaucrat collects taxes. I don't do that anymore. And those, those bureaucrats are usually freed slaves, highly educated, like desk men, desk men, right? They're not as willing to play these power politics. So like everyone just basically everyone is less because of this centralization, everyone is less powerful. So the opportunity to stage a coup just becomes far, far That's harder correct. to pull. It off. has other problems okay. that are going to eventually result be some of the, the, the causes of the downfall of the Western Roman Empire. But for now, it's working. We're doing good. So we have this, we have that. Um, and yeah, and so through these mechanisms, Diocletian is able to stitch back, or sorry, Aurelian is able to stitch back together the Roman Empire through conquest and military uh, military victories. And Diocletian is able to hold it together by changing the structure of Roman government such that it better fits this, this new world that Rome is living in. Okay, excellent. And it, would you say that those were all the things that needed to be solved to get us out of the crisis? Or is there anything else before we go to analysis? Those are the main ones. You have the economic, so what did we cover? We covered the economic one of fixing the currency and replacing the bartering system with a money economy again. You have the go the governing one where you, you take your uh, former rivals to power and make them cabinet members in your new government. You have the social one where you basically strip the nobles of their authority and hand it over to bureaucrats who are loyal to you. And you have the military one where you, um, you, you change the way that the, the borders are patrolled and ruled and uh, to stop barbarian incursions. Yeah, I'd say those are the major ones. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and just the, the luck that the, the plague is starting to die down as well. Yeah. Okay. So I want to, pause and then talk a little bit about what it takes to get out of a crisis. Because I, I think that if the United States is heading into a crisis, or if one day we do find ourselves in a far greater crisis, it's good to know 
this is like first aid basically this is like a first aid kit of like if there's any chance of like saving your empire here's what you need to do so i actually give a lot of credit in all of this to aurelian because of the two things that you said earlier is that he's the first you know general who's like one is his ego sufficiently under control he's not he's willing he's willing to i guess delegate power more and he also has a sense of purpose like he actually has ideas as to how to fix the empire and like if all of the politicians that are popping up are just egomaniacs and they they just want power for the sake of nothing is really going to change and they they might rule for a short period of time but it's only a, a matter of time before the next uh power hungry general takes their place it gets really hard though when someone has legitimate purpose and, and like purpose that's not just self-serving but purpose that can help everyone else it becomes a lot harder to justify removing that person by just sheer force when they're actually doing good every single day well don't forget also that aurelian started by aurelian and continued by diocletian like we had just discussed is this idea of divine rulership where they both demanded to be called um dominus et deus which is lord and god Right. And they had these like really elaborate ceremonies all the time and people couldn't look them in the eye. You had to bow your head when you're in their presence. They were starting to create this this otherworldly right to rule beyond just I have good ideas, you know. But that's see, I kind of find that to be a little on the dangerous side because maybe or Aurelian and Diocletian are smart enough to like pull it off. But what happens when the next person becomes emperor and they're like, I am a god or I am this or that, but they don't have the brains to actually run the empire efficiently. That's that's where I kind of see a danger with that whole divine right thing going. Because I, I do think of like the French monarchy, some some you know, maybe King Louis the Fourteenth was able to pull it off very nicely, but then later on, you know, it's very easy to just believe that you're a god without actually having the sufficient brains to to, to run the empire. So I do see a danger with that with well, that system. Just, I think you just answered your own question. Is like, you know, you're like, what happens when some a weak ruler comes by? It's like, well, when a weak when a weak ruler comes by, the, the situation collapses, right? Um, the the fall of Rome is is precipitated by like a string of, of weak rulers. The crisis of the third century is precipitated by a string of, of weak rulers. It's really hard. Uh, you can only a country can only sustain weak rule for so long before collapsing. You know. Now, no matter what. Now, here's the thing, though. I think that you can prevent weak rulers if you have sufficient safeguards. And I think that the divine right thing. Is actually is actually is harmful in that sense because let's just say Aurelian and Diocletian and, and maybe maybe their minds were not developed to this extent but suppose they had said well I have the right to rule because I'm the smartest person in the room or I I can just look at my progress look at the growth that I've helped look at the problems that I've solved I think when you justify rulership with metrics of success it's really harder for a weak ruler to kind of wedge their way in there because they don't, they, they can't produce those metrics of success. Yeah, that's true. Um, in the case of, in the case of, of Rome, what's happening is that so many are just trying that they're just weakening. They're just weakening the government. Like every time, even if this ruler really doesn't have a great shot at it, just the act of pulling your troops off of the, the border to go wage civil war is going to weaken the emperor and eventually he'll be weakened enough that someone will be able to take him down and take over and then the one that wins and takes over will be substantially weaker because he essentially won with help from everyone else right and it's so sort of like you have this deterioration 
I think that so this is this is very interesting because the 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 skills that get us out of the crisis of the third century, you know, employed by Aurelian and and later completed by Diocletian, um, you know, uh, taking care of the currency, rearming the borders and stuff. This this is all um, examples of having a purpose, taking ownership of things, not not creating a cult like state where everything revolves around you. But you can see that the seeds, the, the reason why they're able to kind of avert Rome from falling just then and there, but it's sad that they still plant, like this is a tragedy because they avert Rome from falling during the crisis of the third century, but they still plant the seeds that will ultimately lead to its demise. And this is just, that, that's very, very sad in, in, in that sense. Whereas if they had maybe done away with some of the divine right things and implemented other systems, of, of measuring who should be ruler, then maybe Rome would never have collapsed. Yeah, maybe. Um, the, the thing is, is that during this era, it was really important to centralize power and authority. Yeah. Decentralized power and authority was enabling these other, these, these generals to kind of, uh, have aspirations of power and to make runs at the government, which, and every time they attempted, it's not like, I, I can't stress this enough, that just because you are able to uh, fight off a civil war mm -hmm. does not mean that like, well, that was, the threat has been handled, we're, we're good, we, we defeated the enemy general, everything's normal now. You are worse off for having to have fought that civil war. Sure, yeah. No winners so, in civil wars. Right, and so enough of these civil wars will topple even the strongest of rulers. Yes, yes. Right? Like crabs in a barrel, eventually it, it'll become too much for you and you'll be pulled down, um, even if, if you were originally the strongest. And so... This was necessary during this time. This, mm. uh, this. Um, I am the absolute authority. Yeah, but as you as you've so keenly noticed, this comes with its own disadvantages. The biggest of which, which is part of the reason that the Western Roman Empire fell, is that it depends on the central authority being competent. Yes, you yes, know, right. The second the central authority is not competent. Uh, the the government is is grinded to a halt, whereas a decentralized government maybe will do better, even if the the central government is 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 failing. Yes, right? yeah, it's like divine right works if the ruler truly has like divine ideas. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a good way to put it. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and and the last thing, and I think this is very brilliant on beh on behalf of Diocletian, is this idea of. You know, I, I said earlier that this is like keeping your enemies close, right? And and I stand behind that phrase. But in some way, I also think it's a way of rewarding those who are very threatening, but also competent at the same time. Because in order to be threatening, you also have to be highly competent, right? Like, like I wouldn't make you my executive vice president of a company if I didn't think that you could actually pull off another company, right? So... I think that there is some genius in giving very smart and threatening and competent people some degree of power because one, 
it just lessens your workload a little bit, right? As long as you don't, like we said in a previous episode, fully abdicate power because then they can run amok. But if you give them some controlled power, you're now utilizing their brain power and you're utilizing their, their better resources and you're making it work for you instead of against you. And that's also like a spray. It's like, it's like, a, like a bug repellent that you can spray around your empire to prevent you know, another cabal from happening and another civil war from erupting. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, that's what, that's what he does. And, you know, whether he's successful is, is another story, but that was at least his idea. Brett, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Aaron. I appreciate it. This concludes the 17th part in our series, Rome, the Decline of Democracy. I'm Aaron Azrod.